Would you, if you haven't already, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some blue Bibles probably underneath the seat around you, and in that Bible you can turn to page 986. In the first 12 verses of chapter 2, which is the section we're dealing with, the Apostle Paul appears to be on the defensive concerning the gospel ministry that he and his team were fully engaged in and had recently carried out at that time in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, Paul's defense here is thought to be his response to slanderous charges that were circulated in Thessalonica by opponents of the gospel. Those opponents primarily being unbelieving Jews that had worked successfully to get Paul and his team to leave Thessalonica around three months or so after they started preaching the gospel there. In making his defense, Paul provides a detailed account of his gospel ministry, and by doing so, we are provided with an exemplary model for gospel ministry or a picture of what gospel ministry should look like. Or, to see it another way, a model for gospel ministry that we should learn from and imitate as those who are also responsible for advancing the gospel or advancing the amazing message concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So looking at this model is the focus for me as we move through the text together. I'm just going to read the first four verses this morning because we won't get any farther than that. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Now, as many of you know, this, and as it says in your bulletin, this is part three. Part three on this section, and we have only worked through the first three verses of these 12 verses. But I am, on purpose, working very slowly, and maybe too slowly, For some of you, and if so, I would just ask that you would be patient with me. But I am working slowly through this section of Scripture and spending more time on review than I might normally. Why? Because I want to make some of the points that I have uh, made already more clear. In fact, that's what's happened as I've looked back and Just so you know, as I'm putting together a sermon on a passage, 
One of the things I'm always aiming for is, of course, to get the message, to find out what does it actually mean, but then to communicate that in a way that is as clear as possibly can be. And that's a challenge. Often it's a, it's a great challenge. And sometimes I do that well, and sometimes not as well as I would like to do it. As we keep coming back to this text, I've looked back and thought, I don't think I communicated that as clearly as I could have. And so that's why I'm coming back to it, reviewing it one more time, and hopefully giving it to you with a little bit of a tweak that might, might make a, a greater impact upon you or help you understand it in a way that maybe you didn't understand it before. So that's one reason I'm moving slowly and spending time doing review each time with this section. But also it's because of the matter that we are covering here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that is gospel ministry, gospel ministry. Um, I have referred to this website before. It's a, it's a great tool. It's called gotquestions.org. It's a place where you can go and throw in a question about Christianity, about religion, and it generally, uh, what I found to be the case, gives you back an answer that is solid and biblically based. So under the question in, on that website, what are the purposes of the church, you can read it there, but one of the things it says there is the church is to be a lighthouse in the community, pointing people toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church is to both promote the gospel and prepare its members to proclaim the gospel. That is indeed... One of the purposes of the church, I would say one of the great purposes of the church, to make Christ known and to advance the gospel in our communities and throughout the world as God gives us the means and resources to do such things. I would add this. There's this book I've recommended to you before. I'll recommend to you again. In fact, it would be a great Christmas gift uh, for your household. It is called It's Thick. You could use it to hold doors open, but that would be a terrible use of it because it's so heavy. But it's called Biblical Doctrine, a Systematic Summary of Biblical Truth. It's by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. And uh, I've referred to this book before. In fact, I would say this. People sometimes ask me, what would be a good family devotion to take my family through? And, of course, depending on the age, if they're at least... uh, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years old, I would even think, 10, depending on your children. I, I might use this. I might just take my family a section at a time through this book. It would just be a great resource. But in this book, they uh, have a section on the church to help you understand what is the church, what isn't the church, what, how you should think about the church of Jesus Christ and local churches. And it addresses as well what are the purposes of the church. And it has three, it categorizes them under three, which is a good way to do it, exalting God, edifying believers, and third, evangelizing the lost, evangelizing the lost. And under that section of evangelizing the lost, it says this, believers in the early church were characterized by a passion to preach the gospel and make disciples. Their zeal made their enemies take notice. The hostile Jewish leaders told Peter and the other apostles, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Paul and his fellow missionaries were similarly accused of turning the world upside down. Those are the kind of statements made in response to what was happening through the church. 
Paul and his fellow missionaries were similarly accused of, I already said that. Their bold declaration of salvation through Jesus Christ reverberated throughout the known world. And then it states here, the church ought to be characterized by that same courageous zeal in every age. That would include ours. Further, they say, because they understand the hope of eternal salvation and the converse reality of God's coming judgment, believers should be eager to proclaim the good news of salvation. Through the church will continue to exalt, oh, sorry, though the church will continue to exalt Christ and edify one another in heavenly glory, evangelism, telling people the good news of Christ, is something that can be done only in this life. There's no evangelism going on in heaven. The New Testament presents evangelism as the responsibility of church leaders. And unfortunately, some people think it's just their responsibility. Some Christians do. But also Christian individuals and the church as a whole. The salvation of sinners brings glory to God. So when we talk about living for the glory of God, it includes that very thing. Leading people to Christ, that brings him glory. So the salvation of sinners brings glory to God and instills his people with a contagious joy. Conversely, churches that ignore or devalue evangelism will experience stagnation and decline. That's a serious matter. And so as we look at this section here that addresses uh, gospel ministry, it is a very serious matter to me. And it's also serious because when I was getting ready to plant the church, I had read so many books uh, this is now seven, you know, over seven years ago now. I read so many books on church planting and church growth and strategies and so on and so forth. One of the warnings that they gave was that the longer a church is in existence, the less converts it makes. It just seems to be a trend. We've been in existence for seven years, and I haven't baptized anybody in a little bit, in a little bit. And generally what happens is in the beginning... The church, as it starts off, is really focused on making Christ known. It's usually small, and, and, but then as they grow, what can happen is instead of keeping that outward mindset, they begin to kind of focus inward only and lose that drive and that zeal to make Jesus known. All kinds of factors play in. Even they talk about the size of a congregation, that if the chairs, that the place starts to get too full, people don't feel comfortable with it being that full, so they feel less, they're less motivated to invite their friends and family. And so they'll even, they even talk about, then you have to build out a bigger worship center because then maybe people will start inviting people again. But, but uh, all of these various factors can play into this. But here's what I know. I don't care how long someone exists, we need to always be about the business of making disciples of Jesus Christ, of telling our friends and our family and our neighbors about him, of advancing the gospel, always. And so we will need to keep calling one another back to that very thing to make sure that we haven't lost our zeal or turned our focus away from that onto other things. So 
In regard, and that's why I'm moving slowly through this section, in regard to the detailed account of exemplary gospel ministry found in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, that we should learn from and imitate, I want to remind you again, but a little differently, hopefully, a little bit better, hopefully, of the lessons I have drew out from that section for us, okay? So I'm going to do that, and then we're going to add another one as well as we look at verse 4. So the first lesson or, that we've learned, uh, taken from verse 2 that we just read, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The first uh, lesson is in order to be faithful in gospel ministry, we need to be willing to, and, and maybe you can now tell me how this ends or finishes, maybe. We need to be willing to, in order to be faithful in gospel ministry, we need to be willing to face opposition. Yeah, opposition. We need to be willing to face opposition. That's what we see in the life of Paul and his team who were making the gospel known for the glory of God. We must not let the very real possibility of being disliked or despised or even harmed by some deter us from trying to share the gospel of God with those around us. Or to say it another way, though making known to others what the Bible really says concerning the divine person and saving work of Jesus Christ may result in some sort of hostility or antagonism being directed toward you, you, as a servant of the Lord, should not find reason to pause but rather keep pressing on in doing your very best to communicate the true message of Christ to those around you, okay? Or if you have not been doing that, begin. (laughs) And you may not have been doing that because of fear of opposition or conflict or hostility. That can occur and does occur when you make the real Jesus known, the Jesus of the Bible. It's a possibility. The other side of that is people get saved in the course of doing that, and they respond in saving faith, and they rejoice, and you rejoice. But the other side is there are those who do not respond positively, rather negatively, and there are varying degrees of that negativity, and some of that is directed at you. And I want to digress for a moment in thinking about this point. I said a moment ago that, you know, the idea is that we're making known to others what the Bible really says concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are a number of false gospels out there that pretend to be the true or pretend to be true Christianity. Do you have any idea what I'm referring to? I see you nodding your head, Senia. There are many, actually, many false gospels, not true gospels. But they, they put on the mask of Christianity. 
they say that they are Christianity. These gospels, by the way, don't generally bring about the same hostility from the unsaved that the true gospel does. Why? Well, it's because unredeemed or unregenerate people find them to be pleasing to their ears. So I've mentioned this gospel many times before, but such as the prosperity gospel. Right? So if, I, if I'm telling people about a Jesus that's just basically there to uh, make this life better, fix your health problems, fix your lack of wealth problems, uh, give you a big house and a nice car if you have enough faith in this Jesus, how much pushback is there against that? I mean, that sounds good. It's, you know, Jesus the genie. And that, in one sense, is the prosperity gospel. But it parades itself as Christian. And just because it has the name doesn't make it so. And that's all over the television and radio, unfortunately. There's also the all roads leads to heaven gospel. Right? So I'm getting to the point of why I'm bringing this up in a second. But just think this through with me. It's important that we are giving the true gospel, which is a true message concerning the divine person and saving and sanctifying work of the one and only Lord Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures. It is that gospel that I'm talking about that stirs up serious opposition. But there are plenty of other gospels that don't. So all roads lead to heaven. I was reading something, um, and this is prevalent in our world especially in our age of tolerance. My wife is a fan of Dolly Parton. And if you don't know who Dolly Parton is, then I guess it's possible. But she's a... <laughs> she is a, uh, a country. She has been and still is a country singer, pretty, pretty well-known country singer, Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton claims to be a Christian and openly expresses that. So I was reading this article, it was the religion of various stars. So I made sure my wife knew about this one. Now, she's a fan of Dolly Parton's music, not necessarily Dolly Parton the person. But um, as you listen to her music, you can pray for her, sweetie, because she needs your prayers for salvation. Because she says this, God, now listen, this is what she says, God is in everything I do and all my work glorifies him. That sounds, that's a that sounds like a great statement and one that I would hope any Christian, real Christian, would make. But then she goes on to, then the article goes on to say, but she puts great stock in the biblical phrase, judge not lest ye be judged, which is one of those phrases that is regularly taken out of its context and twisted to mean exactly what it does not mean. Such as, you cannot say anything bad about anything. You cannot make a determination that something is wrong or right, right? You know, that's basically what people think it means when it says that in the scriptures, which is ridiculous. But, you know, she's a, she, she believes in this judge not lest you be judged. As Dolly sees it, quote, we're all God's children. No matter how we try to get to heaven, we all want to go there. We just have our own routes to take. And uh, if you don't know, she, she's okay with homosexuality. 
which makes sense in light of what she's saying. And the idea that we're all God's children is not a biblical statement. You must become a child of God, according to the Apostle John, through faith in Christ. But she claims to be a Christian, so people love her, right? Because no pushback. She's not saying anything that creates real controversy, as the real gospel does. You know, there's the gospel of good works. The unregenerate, unredeemed man or woman loves that gospel because it allows them to hold on to their pride, saying that I've earned my way, I've merited this heaven. So if you preach a gospel like that, people love it. And when I say people, the lost love it. They don't have to humble themselves. They don't have to confess the truth that they are absolutely guilty before a holy God and they do not deserve the glories of heaven or the hopes of eternal life. They do not deserve it. They deserve the opposite. They deserve the very wrath of God and eternal hellfires that are prepared for all those who reject the Lord. You have the gospel of easy believism, right? Just, it doesn't need, you don't, just like Tim was mentioning this morning, right? So Christian, that word is thrown all, just thrown all over the place. And it, you just people say they're a Christian because they attend church occasionally or they have a Bible in their house or, yeah, I believe in God, but are they followers of Christ? Are they pupils of his? Are they looking to make him known and become more like him? Because that's what happens to true believers. That's what true believers do and followers of Jesus. But this idea of easy believism, just, you know, say a quick prayer, you're in, and then nothing else really matters. If you want to, like, get into another stage of Christianity, you know, a more advanced stage and actually start living a holy life, you can do that, but you don't have to. You just, you just believe, and then you're guaranteed heaven. Not a lot of pushback on that. You don't even have to talk to sin about sin to people. You don't have to challenge them on their sin or, or call them to repentance or exhort them in their unrighteousness. No need to do that. You're good. So that gospel's out there. It's a false gospel. And, of course, there's the gospel that calls evil good. You just drive up Euclid. There's a Methodist church with a, a rainbow flag out front, and they endorse, listen, and I've said this before, and this is a big problem with our culture, but I, I, would, I would welcome those who take to themselves the title of homosexual, I would welcome them into this room. I want them to hear the truth of the gospel and get saved. They shouldn't be treated poorly or as if they're monsters, because they're not. They're sinners like us. But if they're embracing that lifestyle, they're unregenerate. They need to be redeemed that they might find in that the power of God and the Spirit of God to live a life that now honors and glorifies God. So we welcome them. But what some churches are doing is not just welcoming them, but saying that is an alternative lifestyle, even one that should be honored, accepted, celebrated. They are calling evil good. Wow, that fits right in with our culture. And so those churches generally have less opposition. They preach a false gospel. These false gospels make it possible for those who promote them then to avoid opposition that the true gospel can and does generate. And I would add, they 
confuse then other Christians about the reality of opposition when it comes to gospel proclamation. Because you're looking around at all the prosperity gospel, the easy believism, the gospel of works, the gospel that says evil is good, and they're not getting the opposition, and all of a sudden you got me up here saying, yeah, there's opposition, and then you, you actually attempt to preach this Jesus, this one who says, hey, not, there's not many roads to heaven. There's only one way. I'm it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what I say about sin, and this is what I say about righteousness, and this is what I say about how one can be made right with God, and it's only through humbling yourself and bowing before me and confessing your sins and calling out to me to save you. That's it. And people don't like that, right? So then you all of a sudden you get opposition and you're like, what's this about? So that's why I wanted to draw your attention. Remember, those, all those, quote, Christian groups and churches and organizations You want to know why they don't have the opposition they have? You want to know why they advance so quickly? They preach a false gospel because the real gospel, the authentic gospel, the true gospel has always experienced opposition. From day one to this day, we should think no different about it and we must be willing then to press on, to push forward in spite of the opposition that it generates. We're not going to change the message. God forbid we change the message like others have done or alter it or water it down or sugarcoat it. Don't do that. Rather, understand that the real gospel creates opposition, but do it anyway. Because on the flip side, God saves people through that gospel, the authentic gospel. Okay. So let me say this. Opposition is an occupational hazard of genuine, authentic, true gospel work or ministry. It's an occupational hazard of it. So if we, the church of Jesus Christ, begin to shy away from the risk that comes with genuine gospel work, if we choose to play it safe, If we maybe say something like, you know what, I'll pray for that individual, but I'm not so comfortable with proclaiming to them the truth of Jesus. And we should pray. Prayer should go before because it's a work of God in saving people. So we should be seeking him and praying for our neighbors and our family members and our co-workers, for the lost around us, and praying that that their eyes would be open and their ears unstopped and their hearts changed by God. But God does all of that through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if if we play it safe or we refuse, then how will the work get done? How will the work get done? How will the gospel go forth as God has commanded it to if we aren't willing to face opposition? Right? It won't. Or... It won't to the degree that it should. In a song that I like very much titled Christ is Mine Forever by City of Light, awesome group, look them up. There's a section in that song that goes like this, one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. Do you think like that? Is that like run through your, that, that that's a real reality? Because the reason the reason that's the case is because 
that person, as they're thinking that through, is making Jesus known. That's why they're encountering harm and hatred for his name. The real Jesus, making the real Jesus known. It says, one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name, but mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. Wow, that's some, you hear that language? You know, that's the same language the Bible uses, war, that kind of, the language concerning war, battling. It closes, and he has said, God, he will deliver safely to the golden shore. I said, so you can see the focus, you know, war now, peace later. War now, peace later. Not peace now. Peace later. The golden shore is not here. And it should not be try- you should not try to find it here. War now. War, by the way, is never pretty or comfortable or fun. Yeah? Right? War is filled with conflict and hostility and opposition. And I would argue, I would, I would suggest to you, this, is, this may be why people don't even, they don't see the importance of the church. It's their lack of making Jesus known. And as a result of that, not feeling the pushback and the opposition and the hostility, because through time, the church has been a place for the wounded Believer, to come together and be re-energized and encouraged and exhorted to keep on pressing on, right? So they, they saw, I need that local church. I need to be with other believers and sisters in Christ because throughout the week, I'm making Jesus known and I'm getting hit for it again and again and I need to be with my brothers and sisters who love me and we are united together in thought. I need to be reminded once again, I'm not crazy, but this is the truth. Seriously. And I, my opinion is, is that maybe one of the lack of, uh, you know, apathy or one of the reasons for apathy, even among Christians concerning being with the local church and being plugged in and being involved is they don't feel like, you know, they don't really see that aspect of it because they don't need it because they're not getting punched and beaten up by the world for this reason. But that's been the case, and that's why I think the church is such a gift. Christians are in a war in this present world, okay? So we need to have a warlike mentality. We need to see ourselves and be good soldiers for Jesus Christ. And good soldiers do not run from opposition, right? What do they do with soldiers like that? I mean, you know, depends on what era. They used to sh- they could shoot them, lock them up, kick them out of the army. Good soldiers don't run from opposition. Rather, they choose to face it, and they carry out their commanders, and they choose to face it because they're carrying out their commander's orders. So, beloved, when you pray for one another... Please add this to your list, to pray for one another in this regard, that, and I mean this body, this local body, that we would realize the reality of the situation, that we are at war, that we need to have a warlike mentality, that our peace awaits us, it's not to be found here, and that we are to be making Jesus known in spite of the opposition, not to shy away from it, and definitely not to 
twist or pervert the message or to water it down so that we can avoid it. And not to keep making excuses, but, you know, for why we're not doing it. We need, we need to help each other in this regard. We need to keep doing that. So also taken from, now that, so that's the first lesson. Lesson two, they'll go, they'll go faster here. Taken from verse two was boldness in God, was boldness in God. We must remember that the confidence or courage or boldness needed to face and endure the hostility that comes from attempts to make the gospel of God known to others is to be found, as Paul and his team did, by looking to our great God, to whom we have been united by saving faith and putting our hope and trust in him and who we know him to be. He is absolutely sovereign over all things, even over any who might oppose us or any difficult situations we might find ourselves in as a result of making our God or Christ known. And God alone has the power that is ours in abundance through the Holy Spirit or God the Spirit that now lives in us, Acts 1.8, that can and will energize us and sustain us in and through the potentially hazardous work he has given us to do. Just to remind you, that is the work of making the Lord Jesus, we are so blessed to know, known to others that they too might, as it says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We find our boldness in God. One writer says, Paul's confidence, that's where we should find it, was not in himself. On the contrary, his confidence or boldness was solely in God. As he would later write to the Ephesians, he was strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his might. This writer goes on to say, the servant of God preaches the message God has laid out in his word, not some other message. And when opposition comes, he trusts in the power of God and stays obedient to his calling. All that was true of Paul and his companions As with all dedicated preachers of the gospel, they counted the cost of faithfully confronting sinners with the truth and rested boldly in the sovereign, supreme power of God. So, just trying to make this clear, more clear to you, let me just quickly illustrate that to you, this idea. where Where do we find boldness for this occupational hazard that is gospel ministry. We find it in God. We find it in looking to him and trusting in him, in his power, in his strength, in his might. And he has generously and richly supplied us with all of that through his spirit that now indwells us. But we must trust in that and believe that to be the case. We can trust in God that he is the one that has control over whatever situation we might find ourselves in. And this God is good, and he'll force even the worst situations that we might find ourselves in to do good and to accomplish his purposes. That kind of knowledge and trust and belief then allows me to step in and step out 
and make Christ known in spite of the fact that I might get some serious pushback, might face hostility, might be slandered, might be hated, might even be harmed. I know that even through that, God's going to see me through it. He'll give me the power, the energy. He'll sustain me. So to illustrate that, when I was younger, I had a best friend named James. James is about this tall, this wide, all muscle, all muscle. He was a wrestler. I have always been, well, not as thin as I used to be, but I used to be really thin, skinny boy. Um, when I was with James, I was bold. Not because I thought I could handle the situation, and I'm talking about, you know, as young men do, we got ourselves into uh, conflict with other young men. <laughs> but I would never would have done that on my own because I know that I would have been demolished. But with James, I, I felt very comfortable. I watched him fight. I had watched him take down people twice his size. Not only was he all muscle, but he was an incredible wrestler. I was bold in him knowing who he was and what he could do and that he was with me when he was with me. That was pretty bold. You might say arrogant, but there was a boldness that came, right? It's that kind of idea. James wasn't always with me, so I wasn't always bold. God is always with us. He indwells us. That was the second lesson. We need to put our hope and faith and trust in God and who he is and his sustaining power. That gives us the courage to press on in his sovereign power. Verse 3, no attempt to deceive. That was from verse 3. No attempt to deceive. So in explaining himself, Paul, and defending his ministry, he says there was no attempt to deceive on our part. Exemplary gospel ministry does not resort to any manipulative or devious methods to ensnare converts. It does not rely upon trickery or humanly devised schemes or empty promises like the prosperity gospel does in order to gain followers. Paul's gospel ministry was free of deceit of any kind. Why? Well, <laughs> obvious reasons. It would be dishonest and therefore entirely displeasing to God, and Paul sought to please the Lord in all things, just as every believer should. Right? He took God's word to God's world in God's way. But in addition to that, the gospel of God, the message of Jesus Christ, does not rely on or have need for such things. False gospels do. False wisdom does but not the true, authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not rely on or need trickery or manipulation or humanly devised schemes in order to gather followers or converts. Rather, God sovereignly and supernaturally works to save and change those he has chosen through the simple and honest and straightforward proclamation of the gospel. 
The Bible teaches us, beloved, that the unbelieving world hears and is often offended by the message of Christ or thinks it to be foolish. But for those God has called, they hear it favorably. And by a work of God's sovereign and saving grace, they come to respond to it in repentance and faith and become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Manipulative or devious methods have no place in the work of genuine, exemplary gospel ministry. So we must not ever embrace them. We must not consider them at all. Think about what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This translation, it says, We preach, the Apostle Paul says, about Christ and his death on the cross. That is very hard for Jews to accept. A dead Messiah. And everyone else thinks it's foolish. But there are those God has chosen, both Jews and others, to them, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. No trickery, no manipulation, no deceitfulness, just a straightforward message. And to those that God has chosen, they hear it and they believe it for what it is and they respond in faith. While the rest of the world finds it to be ridiculous and dumb and mocks it, so the gospel doesn't advance or win people over, beloved, to say it another way, by the craftiness of a shady used car salesman. A bad, a bad, so let me just say, not all used car salesmen are bad. So I should say bad. By the craftiness of a, of a that's why I said shady. That's why I added shady. Okay, just so you know, in case there's a, by the craftiness of a shady used car salesman. Rather, it gains converts by the work of followers of Christ like you and I who simply and sincerely continue to share the true message of Christ with others and then leave the results to God. That's it. That's it. That's how the gospel advances. We tell it like it is. We tell what the scriptures say concerning salvation, concerning Jesus, concerning what's been revealed, and we leave it at that. And then God works. In some, he saves. For others, they're hardened to that truth even further. And they reject it. Fourth, our appeal does not spring or come from impurity or impure motives. Oof. Exemplary gospel ministry is driven by pure or righteous motives. We got that from verse 3. Paul here distanced himself from teachers who were simply earning a living by their wits as one writer says, peddling so-called wisdom. He wanted the Thessalonians to understand that the appeal of the gospel was not like that of these peddlers, those peddling a message or a story to gain something in return. His motives were not personal enrichment. Beloved, Paul was not looking to get, but rather to give and glorify God. So unlike other traveling teachers of Paul's day, there was no impure motive driving Paul and his co-workers to make Christ known. So what was driving them? What was driving them? Love, beloved. Love was driving them. Pure love, Christian love. 
And I would say, first and foremost, it was love for the Lord that drove them to then love the lost and love those around them. Remember the words of Jesus. He answered and said, if anyone in John 14, 23 loves me, if anyone loves me, and Paul loved the Lord Jesus, if anyone loves me, he'll do what? He'll keep my word. He'll keep my teaching. He'll do what I have commanded him to do. It was love that was driving Paul. Self-sacrificial love. It also says in 1424, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You know, the Lord was clear, right? In Matthew 28, 19, he gave us his commission, make disciples. Make disciples. That was his command, make disciples. Make me known to others. Make followers of me. In the process, you're going to face opposition, but this is what I've called you to do. If you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my word. Make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have said to you. That's what Paul and his team were doing, and that is what we are to do as well. But what is supposed to drive that? Not impure motives, but what really drives that? Pure motives, love, love for God. And that's just a quick plug. That's why I want to do this book beginning in January. It's called Love or Die. It's an it's a exploration of Revelation 2.4, where it's said of the church, you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's always a danger for us to grow cold in our, in our love, the love that we had at first. And as that love diminishes for our Lord, then our activity for him, our willingness to do all that he has said to do, will diminish as well. So it's very important that we continue to, to root out anything that's getting in the way of that love and to spend time growing in that love for our Lord. But we're never going to make him known because it's difficult and it requires great sacrifice. But a great love for the Lord Jesus will lead to great proclamation concerning him. Fifth, our appeal does not spring from error. That was from verse 3. These are all points or lessons that we've taken for gospel ministry that we should learn from and, and imitate. Our appeal does not spring from error. So exemplary gospel ministry requires a conviction that the gospel you preach is indeed the truth. And I said to you last time, quoting someone, Paul was unshakably convinced that his gospel was indeed the truth, and that doubt on this point would have taken the heart out of the apostle and made him incapable of braving anything for its sake. What if he had doubts whether or not this was really genuine and authentic, that this was not divine, that this was not God's message, that he had been deceived or he was confused or had you know, visions that weren't true or he was just out of his mind? Then why would he keep on pressing on and suffering for such things? It was only because he believed this to be the absolute truth that is divine, a message from God, and therefore he must make it known, and it gave him motive to move and to continue to press forward. I'm not going to sacrifice myself for a lie. So it is true of us as well. We must have conviction concerning the truth of this message we have been called to preach concerning this one who has died and risen again to save sinners, to sanctify sinners, and to bring them unto himself. 
So I thought about this. I thought, what gets in the way? What could get in the way of that? Certainly, you know, when someone gets saved in the very beginning, think about it. Often, this is what happens. They are, they experience that reality. There's a peace that they have, a, a realization all of a sudden that they have been, their sins have been wiped away, washed clean, that they are now right with God. They never could have been. They've been working so hard to be right with him. Now they realize they are right with God, not by their own effort, their own merit, but by the work of Jesus Christ. And they are given all of this hope and glory and filled with wonder. And, and they, they believe it and they're living in it. And they realize Jesus died to just crush sin. Not only it's, it's power or not only it's penalty in the future, but it's power. They can now walk in newness of life. I mean, they have everything before them. It's so wonderful. And often because of that, they are on fire and telling others about this Lord Jesus that they had encountered and been saved by. Yeah? And maybe that wasn't true of you, but that is often the story. But then years go by. And what happens? Beloved, it's not always the case. It could be many things, but one thing that can happen is the problem of unchecked sin or a failure to pursue our sanctification, to grow and to mature and to see this gospel now worked out in our life as we become less and less sinful and more and more righteous, manifesting the righteousness of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And I say that because if you don't turn from sin, if you begin to wallow in it, if you're not doing what God has called you to do in order to be a faithful servant and be prepared to make the gospel known, if you're not doing those things, then of course doubt will start to creep into your mind about the truthfulness and the power of this gospel that you once believed. I mean, can this thing really transform people? I don't know. It's not transforming me. But why isn't it transforming you? Why isn't it? Because it does. If you will, by faith, do the things that God has asked you to do, trust in him, repent of sin, study the word, pray to him, all of those things he's called you to do, your life is transformed. And as it's transformed, you are affirmed again and again about the power and the truthfulness of that gospel. So that when you go to someone and say, I know, Bob, I know your life is jacked up. And you have no hope. But there is hope, and I know it. And my life is a testimony to it. Not my life 20 years ago. My life right now. He is changing me. He is transforming if you only knew what I was before. See the conviction and the power? Paul was living in the gospel. He was benefiting from the gospel. He's being transformed by the gospel. Of course he had the conviction that this thing was absolutely true. Our appeal to you does not come from error. I know what it is that I have. I know what it is and that I believed in. I can see its reality in my own life. So, with the, I'm going to just add one more real quick, and we'll come back, because that's what we're doing. And I'm not in a hurry, I'm not in a race to try to get to the end, because I just want to keep driving this home. Six would be uh, in verse four that I want to draw out for us as we consider this defense of Paul and through this defense, what emerges is this exemplary gospel ministry. 
It says there in verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It's because it's, God, it's God's message. But, or instead, or on the contrary, as other translations translate it, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So I'll give you just a little bit and then we'll close and we're going to have communion. And we'll come back and keep moving through the passage. The sixth is this phrase I want to look at is entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted with the gospel. Exemplary gospel ministry requires that we understand that the gospel has been entrusted to us by God. As fellow followers of Christ, we too are stewards of the gospel of God. Not man's gospel, the gospel of God. One writer says the concept of stewardship is implicit in the phrase entrusted with the gospel. God has entrusted the gospel to Paul, as we see here, as a householder entrusts his property to his steward. Now listen, stewards are not free to do whatever they want with what has been entrusted to them. Okay? In other words, if we're thinking about the gospel, they are not free to keep it to themselves, keep it a secret, or change it. They are not free. The word translated trust here means to, it means to put something into the care and or protection of another, and both would apply in this case. The gospel has put, been put, Paul says, into his care and protection by God. God has chosen, beloved, to put his gospel into the care and protection of his people, into the care of the church, into the care and protection of the redeemed of this age. In the beginning, it was primarily the apostles who led the way, who were the ones to blaze the trail for the gospel. But now, we who have received that gospel through the foundation of the apostles are to continue in that same path of making the gospel known and instructing others in it that they too might make it known. Consider the example of the Thessalonians, right? That's just in chapter 1. Paul was thanking God for them. For what? For their making, in part, for their making known of the gospel. Their faith was spreading everywhere. How? Through them making known the gospel, through their proclamation of it, through them telling of others. So this was not just about Paul and his team. Okay, we've done it. You have the gospel. It's there for you. Enjoy it. It's now given to you and entrusted to you that you would do what God would have you to do with it. Let's make it known. If I entrust you, beloved, with my car or house or dog or child, okay, or you to me, think of it, think it through, then there is an expectation that you will care for and protect my car or house or dog or child as I would want you to or as you would want me to, yes? It is no different with the gospel. This thing has been entrusted to by God to his people which means we must deal with it 
take care of it and protect it in a way that God would have us to. It's his. And we are simply or have been made stewards of this gospel. It is, it is, we are not free to do with it what we want or to sit on it because that is not what God would have us to do with his gospel. You get it? So there is an accountability that we have to God concerning this gospel that we must always remember and be aware of. Are we caring for and protecting the gospel as God would have us to as stewards of it for he has entrusted it to us when he made us followers of Jesus Christ? We'll come back. Things to think about, things to pray about, things to meditate on. Brother, would you come and lead us in our time of communion?